0: Friends and listeners, today's episode, you know, I've said it, I've had some special episodes before, but uh, and I mean it every time, but I mean it a little bit extra today because today's episode was actually a live recording with a good friend, mentor, former investor of mine, and, uh, and a mentor within, within Silicon Valley to, to dozens and dozens of, of entrepreneurs that, uh, that I also just love and respect. His name is Justin Kahn, and he was episode number one for Below the Line, and it comes full circle with episode or part two of that episode with him in front of a live audience in San Francisco, recorded last week. Justin is a founder and investor based in San Francisco. He has been building startups for uh, close to 15 years now, and he's seen pretty much everything there is to see, the ups and the downs, which gives him a really unique perspective. In addition to that, he's also been... A partner at Y Combinator, he's invested in several companies himself. So he's been on both sides of the table, and he's also been on both sides of of the journey—the downs and and startups that have not worked out, and the ups in the startups. Something like Twitch as a co-founder, which uh, was purchased for nearly a billion dollars by Amazon in 2014. Today, Justin is the co-founder and CEO of Atrium, a full-service corporate law firm that uses modern technology. To provide startups all around the world a legal experience that is fast, transparent, price predictable, everything that you want in a uh, legal service that you probably have not gotten in the past with different lawyers or legal services you've used, Atrium is the solution for that. It's phenomenally useful. I've used it. A number of founders that have been on the podcast use and swear by it as well. And it's a welcome improvement on the legal experience that I've had in, in my career so a huge shout out to what Justin is currently doing with Atrium. This conversation, as as I noted, as a part two to episode number one, for listeners that remember episode one, which I think is the most downloaded episode of Below the Line to date, they know that uh, that I'm just delaying the wisdom that Justin can share with everyone that he's learned in his career. So for all the people that have left reviews, On Below the Line, we really appreciate it, especially for those that have left five-star reviews. We read every single one, the good and the bad, and we really appreciate each one. So if you want to take two seconds to leave a a review, you don't even have to write anything out anymore in the podcasting apps. You can just drop in star rating. We really appreciate it. Each app uses those reviews to know what podcasts to serve up to people and which ones to feature. So we appreciate every single one of the reviews that our listeners give. So without further ado, let's get into it with Justin Kahn. This is Below the Line Live. But today, um, I'm really excited about a different set of questions that I'm gonna be asking him about uh, about his journey and the mental side of that journey of creation. So without further ado, please welcome Justin Kahn up to stay. And we have to forgive us as we situate the mics because we've got the mics here. While we're getting set up, uh, I got a question for y'all. Is anyone here pro-thirst? Okay, a few hands went up for pro-thirst. That means that I I must assume that most people in the room are anti-thirst. And if you're anti-thirst, our sponsor, Liquid Death, has just the solution for you. It's water in a can, it's a portfolio company of mine, I'll be open about that. So I'm peddling them pretty hard out of (laughs) self-interest. But I also think it's a great product to murder your thirst. So if you're anti-thirst like me, you reach for a liquid death when you want to kill it. And when you're trying to take up time, great. All right, we fixed the mics. All right. you got your- I got my liquid death. death. All right.
1: It's water. (laughs) <laughs> how, did, no, they, how does it taste it tastes good it tastes good uh peter fam who is uh is he a co-founder or investor basically a i mean he's, he's, he's out there shilling it all the time He's like is? a friend of mine and he i think i said that i quit drinking on twitter and he started he signed me up for like a amazon auto shipment of liquid debt <laughs> so it just shows up in my office oh yeah and you know i don't know about shipping i think the the um you know carbon footprint of shipping Cans of water around by a UPS is like not super good, but I don't know how to cancel it, so, just, <laughs> so it keeps showing up. So you know, I've had a. Lot, I mean, it's good water.
0: It's not bad. It's yeah. not bad, and it is a great. It's I think it's it is my favorite aspect of it is um, yeah I don't really drink either, and being able to have something to go to when out and about, especially with when bars here in SF when they do serve it, having that instead of a a you know bottle of water is uh, is it's the tiniest little thing but it makes me just order two three four of them
1: when i'm at a bar with them <laughs> it's I, really funding and, the company i like it yes yeah. exactly
0: fine helping it from both sides the um tell me a little bit about uh about the the quitting drinking and when you were on the podcast first episode which was about five and a half six months ago you talked a little bit about drinking less but what was the shift from then to going to uh to kind of a a habit of not drinking altogether?
1: I think it was in February when we recorded the first podcast. And then I don't think I'd well, I know I wasn't, I wasn't um, I had not quit drinking yet. And then maybe a couple months later, it was about uh six months ago exactly, because I just hit six months, which is big big deal for me. I think that's the longest I've ever not had a drink uh since I was 13. Yeah. yeah. Um it's been really good. I I you know I realized, I guess I'll just go right into the uh, open sharing, but I had kind of used drinking as an escape from the emotions that I didn't want to deal with my entire life. So, you know, anger, sadness, uh, anxiety. I would, I'm kind of, I'm an Enneagram type seven personality. So it's somebody who's always chasing new, you know, the enthusiasts, There's somebody who's chasing new ideas and and new experiences. And then I would always, the corollary, the flip side of that was running away from, you know, kind of things I didn't want to deal with. And so I had to, a lot of different mechanisms for escape, you know. But one of them was was uh, drinking a lot, and so I'd done that my entire life. And you know, in startups, it's very high stress. Oftentimes, you probably you've I know you've experienced that. Uh, and when you downs. say drinking a lot, what do you like specifically? What do you mean? Well, it could be you know it fluctuated over time, but like probably when I was younger, in my t- early twenties, in startups, I would be getting you know, blackout every other week or something like that. And then, uh, by the time I quit this year, I was probably drinking 15 to 20 drinks a week, but I, that was just like three drinks at dinner five days a week. Right. And so I wasn't really getting completely blotto, uh, unconscious, but I was, you know, I would wake up and just mess up my sleep and I wasn't, I wasn't feeling super good. So, uh, finally decided, you know, I wanted to remove those mechanisms of, of escape from dealing with my with my emotional experience. And uh, I did that, and you know, it's been really good, productive, and healthy for me so far.
0: It's, uh, that is awesome, and yeah, kudos for that. The, you, you mentioned it was six months ago, but I imagine the trek towards even recognizing, oh man, I'm using this to escape from, motion started way beyond you know six months ago. If you were to try to pinpoint when in your life you even started to recognize things that you were doing, that were in, I guess, in, in certain ways maladaptive.
1: When did you start to become sensitive to even just taking inventory of your life in that way? I think just really within the last twelve to eighteen months. It hasn't been very long for me. You know, I I had spent all of this time working on on companies and being worried about like what was what was going to happen, and then like doing all these behaviors to like deal cope with whatever stress I was feeling. And then finally get to the point where, you know, I'd started this new company, I'd already been successful. I think we talked about this last time a little bit and I was like super stressed out again. So that to me was the catalyst for really trying to understand why and then diving deeper into my own experience to see, you know, like uh, what was it about my own experience and what was going on inside of me that was, that was um, creating so much stress or having so many problems dealing with like the, my, the experience of the outside world.
0: What are some of the, and yeah, for listeners and for audience in selling Twitch and kind of getting this this uh, huge stamp of, of approval in many ways, um, obviously having a financial uh, a stamp of the financial runway to do whatever you'd like in life. I want to come back to you saying that you found yourself back in the stressful situation uh, of of your current startup atrium and in a second, but Rickook, what are some other maladaptive tendencies beyond just drinking that you have figured out in that introspection in the last 12, 18 months?
1: Oh, there's like a lot. There are a lot. Um, I think what's been helpful for me is to understand where it comes from, right? And uh, so most of my life I'd like basically have been unconsciously reacting in think to, to scar tissue that I had from when I was younger, right? When you have these formative experiences, you're growing up, people do that you interact with the world certain ways. And then you form scar tissue based on how the world responds to you. And then those are the things that you carry into your life as an adult. Do you um, have some of those memories that you like? Sure. So like one funny one is that like, I really hate talking on the phone. Um, I hate calling people on the phone. When I was a kid, my mom, made me work, she was a entrepreneur and and was a mortgage broker and real estate agent. And uh, she would make me help her out in the office. And one of the things I had to do was data entry. So I hate like doing any sort of forms or paperwork uh, to the point where I'm like regularly like, uh, you know, like I hired someone actually, uh, a chief of staff initially so to talk to my accountants. So I didn't have to, I would be like extra layers removed from like paperwork. And then the other thing that I had to do was like, so I had to do this data entry on this like computer inter mortgage forms into the you know this like horrible desktop software that would crash all the time, and I didn't understand it. And it was very frustrating to me. And then I'd have to fax print it out and fax it to these random you know more like loan offices. And um, I remember I hated calling because I was very shy as a kid, so I'd hate to call. Like These random op you know, I was like whatever 10 years old or something, so I'd pick up the phone, I have to call these random people and be like, Did you get this fax? Which I did not understand, like, what any of the content was, the purpose of it, or anything. And so to this day, like, I just hate getting on the phone. Actually, when I was, you know, in high school and then I think in college, when I before cell phones were around, there were pay phones, you know, some of you might not remember that, but they existed, and uh. I would have to take a piss every time I got on a payphone. Like it was like a biological, like some sort of psychological reaction. It's like without clock, like wow. every time. And I, I never understood why. And then even like once I got a cell phone and even today, like if I have to call a restaurant um, to say like, oh, I'm running late for a reservation or something, i ask my wife to call. Like I can't, I can't deal with it. You know, I can't get on. So that's an example of like something that I didn't even realize until recently. I was carrying this behavior from this, scar tissue that I had from when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And then that's like a funny one, but there's like many worse ones. Do you mind sharing any of the ones that, uh- yeah, absolutely. So like, why do I, you know, I started this company, uh, I got very lucky. I mean, I worked hard. I'm a smart guy. Um, but I got super lucky. We started this company that was about live video streaming. It was like the dumbest company idea ever, which was to put a camera on my head and film myself on the internet. And then somehow, through a lot of luck and some hard work and a few smart decisions, we turned that into Twitch, which, you know, we sold to Amazon for $970 million. So that's like a far exceeds expectations outcome, right? Um, So you might, like, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I kind of thought you'd take it further. Yeah. So (laughs) so, subjective. So why would I start another company? Like I started more companies after that and this most recent company, Atrium, and lots of friends of mine when I started this new company, you know, Atrium is a it's like a law firm for startups to help startups with their legal needs. And people, you know, very different from from Twitch. And people were like, why would you start that uh, another company at all, period? And why would you start that company? And, you know, for me it was, I want to start another company because I wanted to like go further, right? I wanted to my like ego hadn't been satiated with even this um, you know, billion dollar outcome. And I wanted to go further and that you know that's like very poorly adjusted to like what's you know why do i i don't need anything like i don't need more money i don't need more And did you fame. have that kind of dichotomy in your mind of like no i was just unconsciously being like oh i should get more right because i and that comes from now that i've you know been thinking about it, more self-aware in this period of time and you know, i realized i came from like interactions that i had uh, with my parents when i was really young right like so my mom came from malaysia where she was an immigrant uh she immigrated from malaysia to the united states at 17 when she grew up she had nine brothers and sisters in malaysia, rural malaysia and they just like did not feel like they had enough they didn't you know they were very poor and so you know even as she you know carved out a very nice middle class life in america as she was a programmer first and then had this mortgage business um you know she'll always feel like she didn't have enough and communicated that you know like we would always she'd always say oh like we're not we don't have money for that or something like you know and whenever we wanted something as a kid that was always like the default response and so for me, it's like, it, it, I just had this starvation mindset my whole career. I was like, I want more, you know? I want whatever I want, I want more. I gotta, you know, we have a billion dollar outcome, a billion dollar company, I want a 10 billion dollar company. You know, I bought a G-Wagon. I want a G-Wagon with the six wheels, you know? <laughs> they have a G-Wagon with six wheels? Yeah, it's like they only they sell it in the Middle East. <laughs> you know, it's like five times as expensive as a normal G-Wagon. Yeah, so that's that's a very unhealthy sense. mindset. You right. know, It's a very unhealthy mindset, and, you, and
0: but at if, the time I felt like you were super switched on and wise. Beyond your years even then did I mean did it was so it's it's interesting that it was that recent that you're like man I was fucking unconscious, unconscious just operating unconsciously.
1: Well, everyone's at a different level. You know, I mean, you're at different levels of unconscious. You know, i I think I've always been somewhat. You know, had self awareness, moments of self awareness, or or areas that I was self-aware in. I think I'm a pretty humble person throughout my career, but then, you know, it's going to those deeper levels and understanding what are my like, core motivators? Or, like, why do I need, why do I feel like I need more? Um, why do I feel like I need to win the approval of other people, you know, even more than I have? Um, and all those things go back to like, you know, the, the experience that you had when you were younger. And oftentimes, you are you know, you're operating as an adult, you don't even know they exist.
0: Right, yeah, I, I there's two thoughts that I think about. A lot about my childhood that that also comes up, just it manifests in my behavior. Sometimes consciously, a lot. A lot of times, it's only after the fact that I realize, oh, I was subconsciously operating that way. And one was being the youngest of five, having four four older siblings and three older brothers. I just hate authority because when I was two, three, and I probably didn't put this together till maybe a year ago. um, That when I was like four, five, six, my parents are great, but uh, having three older older siblings, three brothers, just you know that were tyrannical authorities uh, over a, a younger brother, I now instinctively um, yeah hate authority. Like it's it's a pretty deep um, it's a deep distrust of authority. Let's put it this way, and uh, and I and I only put that together maybe a year ago. And similarly, I think it's uh, I've got a pretty significant fear of abandonment. Uh, And I think it also ties to being the youngest of five. You know, you're only really allowed to hang out very temporarily and only if you're on your best behavior. And if you're bringing something to the table, And oftentimes it's quite literally just going to get things for my brothers. I'm sure you had your (laughs) younger brothers go get things for you and and do your bidding at times. But but it's uh, those two things, I think, from when I was two, three, four, five, you know, I think it's... uh, I think it was Freud that said, your psyche is formed by age six. Um, that, that powers a lot of that, uh, a lot of your subconscious behavior. Down, of, down the road, to, yeah, I, I empathize with that and it's really only been since I was you know, in my 30s that I even thought
1: about this stuff. It must be very cathartic to know that.
0: It is very cathartic. I can't tell, I can't tell if it's a compass in any way, if I'm able to, to use use it other than just noticing, but I'm okay with just noticing right now.
1: I found for myself that's the first step is to to notice you know oh what that's triggering me why is why is that triggering me asking me that question or why do I want this you know mm-hmm. and, and noticing it you know then you can decide what you want to do you know you have more opportunity to have agency and not let your you know these past scars rule you.
0: What is an example of where you've noticed it, uh, and and what do you what do you mean by you noticing it? I think I know what you mean, but. Like, do you sense it like almost like yeah, physically? Yeah, you feel
1: it in the body, right? Like it's, um, you know, um, and this kind of goes into like a lot of meditation that I've been doing uh, recently. But, you know, being able to be aware of what your human experience is, which includes all your emotional perceptions and, and kind of the phenomenon, the emotional phenomena that you experience, um, y- you can identify it more easily once you are aware that you have these triggers and then ex- notice it and experience that feeling of being in that emotion and then decide what you want to do an example from this week would be you know i was um i was uh you know this is tax day right today or yesterday yeah october 15th so i had to pay pay taxes and there was like a mistake and um on on the um accounts i had i had omitted information accidentally to my accounts and when i was reviewing it I, i noticed it and My wife was like, oh, you got to email them. I was just getting super pissed off. I was super frustrated. I was like, why? You know, normally what would have happened in the past is I would have just had an argument. I would have been triggered. People around me, like my wife, would have misinterpreted that as like something, you know, uh, that I was angry at her or with her or something like that. And then that that could have devolved into an argument. But, you know, I was thinking, I was just like, why am I so triggered? And I was thinking about, you know, going back to when I was a kid and having to fill out these fucking forms on this (laughs) stupid ass mortgage software. And then I can know that. And I can say, what, how do I want to, I don't want to, what I want to do with that information now. What I want to do with that feeling. Where's that feeling in inside of me. Oh, it's, I can feel in my chest and there's a little nausea in my stomach. Think About it. I feel it in my stomach.
0: Like when I'm sensing some type of, uh, just, uh, overarching authority that I am not necessarily, uh, digging, then I, I, I
1: yeah, people feel, just feel it in my stomach and you feel it. And normally, you know, if you're an unconscious about it, you might just feel you might just be angry and irritable or upset or triggered or want to escape. And you don't think you don't even think about why. And then, you know, you're kind of ruled by those those past occurrences. Yeah. Well, and, and so you're saying that
0: you you uh, have a handful of different maladaptive things that uh, over the years beyond just drinking. What are some others that That you've started to notice and become more sensitive to
1: in in recent years. Um. Yeah. So I mean, there's there's a lot actually, um, but you know, on the escape side. So escapes were really big for me because I was very, uh, I I had a lot of trouble dealing with, like especially fear, anxiety about the future, and guilt, guilt about the present, and anxiety about the future. So in the startup, you know, things go well, things go badly, but you're always going to experience things going badly. Actually, it's not just a startup. It's in, in the human part of the human experience. Right. Uh, Buddha said there was every human being will experience 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows in their life. And I really believe that, like, every, you know, every day you will things will go good and they'll go bad. You know, someone will cut you off in the car and you'll be you can be pissed or, you know, someone does something nice to you and you, and you feel joy. And um, that's like on every time, time scale, like days, months, you know, years decades and um when i would experience these sorrows these pains uh, i would feel you know things that went bad in the startup i'd feel guilt about it like maybe i should have done something different or i would feel um stress about the future how is it going to turn out because a lot of my ego and my sense of self-worth was wrapped up in the company and then i would uh kind of be torturing myself incessantly mentally right in my head like oh i didn't do well enough i didn't i didn't if i had just made different decisions i would have done better um, and then I would try to, like, escape from that. So escaping could be, like, going and getting unconscious by, like, drinking a fifth of JMO, which is not not a good idea. But, um, but it also could be just, you know, watching, like, a whole season of, like, Breaking Bad, right, right. in Latin one weekend or something. Or, um, you know, going on a trip and just, like, completely trying to, like have a break from your current context and just like go, go on a vacation and just like shut down from your current context. Mm. And I think all of those things are, are various unhealthy ways of address of like sitting with your discomfort. You know? So one of the things I try to do now is spend more time. If I feel discomfort, I'm, I am guilty. I do feel anxiety. Like I try to spend more time to sit with it and, and understand what that experience is like.
0: Yeah. What is, I have to ask like on the kind of specifics, what is a way that you'll sit with it that you'll, you know, uh, purposefully say, okay, I want to just experience
1: this. Well, I think generally I've been trying to be more comfortable with my discomfort, like across all the different categories of discomfort. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I noticed when I took up meditation earlier this year, um, you know, i meditated every day for the last 262 days and, nice. um, I had like at least you know, roughly about 40 minutes a day, about an hour now. And I I hated it. At first I would, I would um, you know, just be trying to do it for 20 minutes and I would look at my phone and it'd be like three minutes had passed. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I put my phone down. I've use a meditation timer to track my streak and i um then I'd try to meditate again and I look at my phone again, it's like, oh, it's another three minutes. You know. <laughs> and so I was not capable of sitting there. I was someone who's very distracted and bored very easily, um, kind of like a A little ADD of, you know, when I was, I was the type of kid when I didn't have something to read, I would like read the side of a cereal box, right? Like I just did not, was not good at sitting with myself. i used my phone last December, like about a year ago, I checked my screen time. It was like five and a half hours a day. So um, I was just not good at sitting in silence or in boredom or like any sort of, you know, kind of. Uh, boredom is a, f- a form of discomfort, I think, and so I noticed as I as I meditated more and more, I was able to move, you know I stopped checking my phone. I was able to kind of sit there and experience whatever it was. There's boredom or physical pain because I had my legs crossed or whatever, and so that was like a really good practice to help train you know my comfort level at sitting in these kind of uncomfortable situations, and then really going to that step of being mindful about what is this experience like. So what's the feeling of it? If I have a difficult have, you know, I have to have a difficult conversation with someone or I have guilt about something that happened, you know, what's it like to sit with it? And what where is that if you show up in the body, you know, is it in the chest, the stomach, uh, in my in my head, my forehead, my temples, if I'm angry. And that's that's it, you know. And then I try to do more exposure to things that are uncomfortable, you know, like um start walking around barefoot, not in San Francisco. San Francisco, you don't want to <laughs> You know, you, you're going to catch something. But um, I have this ranch up in Sonoma, sort of walking around a couple of miles, uh, you know, a, a hike barefoot, just like, the, you know, it's, a, it's pretty rocky, actually, so it's pretty painful. But just to, like, experience that, that discomfort and be okay with it.
0: Yeah, the, um, the, the church that, uh, that my wife and I attend here in San Francisco called Reality, the, the, the sermon this past weekend, the pastor gave this sermon on, on just uh, disagreement But uh, it's just as applicable to discomfort of his point was, uh, which kind of it was really thought provoking for me was saying that everything in our life is so easy to curate, you know, our Facebook feeds, uh, what music we want to listen to get around commercials, what show you want to watch directly on Netflix. It's so easy to curate everything that it's becoming harder and harder to sit with discomfort because there is literally an app to take away your discomfort. Hey, commercials get Netflix Uh, hate silence, listen to Spotify, hate boredom, you know, cruise Instagram. It's so, uh, easy and those, and those can be great, great tools, um, for the very things that they're, they're built for, but they also, yeah, can be maladaptive. And certainly to his point was just, we are so, uh, unaccustomed to sitting with discomfort because we just never have to do it, uh, or disagreement. And it's, it's a really good, um, just tangentially just sitting with disagreement as discomfort disagreeing with someone and then being able to just sit and hold a a great dinner with them anyhow that's really fucking hard in in 2019 where each little disagreement is kind of this potential seed of ideological difference and the trigger warning right exactly yeah it's uh it's um it was really interesting, I think, and that discomfort. You and I, we got to uh, take a meditation class at uh, Naval's uh, place earlier this yeah, year. Yeah. And it was great to have an hour um, of uninterrupted time, but also I've, I've adopted, that there was something that, that, we, that we were taught there that I really, really enjoyed, which is just sit comfortably and let your mind wander. Let it go wherever it wants. And if you want to lay down, lay down. If you want to move, move. And um, I still have my, my typical meditation um, cadence each morning. But I have found myself building out time where I'm just like, all right, just think. Just sit there with nothing to do, but just think as kind of a relief valve for these undercurrents that are, that are happening, whether it's, um, whether it's a fear, whether it's an anxiety I'm also Enneagram 7, so I, I'm very forward-looking, uh, very future-oriented, very anxious, because I'm constantly creating this future that then doesn't map up to reality, and now I have to fix it and fix it and fix it. Um, yeah, it's sitting with that discomfort, is that's a muscle to build for sure. Um, what were you gonna say?
1: No, definitely, that I agree.
0: Um, well on the Enneagram 7 when did you when did you come uh when did you become familiar with Enneagrams and, and just kind of that introspection of of what number you were and what does that mean
1: to you Well I would say that the number is not I mean the exercise of doing the Enneagram was like it wasn't that big of a revelation to me I mean I kind of knew my personality traits already um I think the bigger thing for me was just being more aware of connecting that stuff back to my past like we were talking about and really realizing that i could make a conscious choice on like how i want to want to what i want to do moving forward So that was probably the part that was like really missing before you know i, I think i took the test like a couple this month this year or something like that but i already like knew most of the things
0: what there's a there's a um, episode with diana chapman earlier in the podcast where um phenomenal executive She's coach yeah, yeah amazing. amazing uh and she goes through every every enneagram personality type and it's really uh it's a great breakdown um the yeah it was helpful for me to figure out my number uh of of 7 as well um so I wanna ask you I wanna ask you the a typical cocktail talk question that founders get um and you can every founder can answer it a million different ways and and feel free to answer it however you want um, but the question that you probably get a lot, um, is, you know, how's Atrium going? Cause you just get asked, how's your startup going? Um, how is Atrium going?
1: It's going like every startup It's going, you know, there's good and there's bad, right? There's things that I are going well and there's things that need to go better. And, uh, I think for me, the more interesting part of that question is just like, how am I you know, dealing with that, right? Like, or how am I, uh, because I think you can find like any startup is going to have things that are like going well and things are going bad and people are just going to focus on like what's going well. Um, I think that for me, my main focus is figuring out how do I like spend my time in my zone of genius and create a, uh, organizational structure that supports that. So for, you know, the zone of genius, uh, concept is really one of the things that I'm, you know, good at that give me energy. Um, that the company needs. Uh, most CEOs that I know end up in, in their zone of competence, or their zone, I think they call it the zone of excellence, actually, which is like the things they're good at, but don't give them energy. And then they, turn, they kind of create a job that they hate doing. And so uh, I think having the self-awareness of what do I actually like doing that gives me energy that the company needs, um, even doing that exercise, that's not a question that people ask themselves very often. And so even asking myself that question could help me identify, be aware of, like, what do I actually want to do? And then how do I find people who have, who can, um, whose personalities match mine or they're complementary to mine so that they they want to do the things that maybe I'm not as good at or don't give me energy? And so really focused on building um, that kind of structure into my executive team up. And I think I've done a pretty good job of that in the last six months. So I have a COO who's really amazing and, and we work really well together her name is Joanna Shevlenko. She's like just incredible because and not only is she incredible as an operator, but we work together really well. Right. Like the things that um maybe I want to spend time on, like culture and coaching and like what kind of company we're, we're building are complemented by the things that she's really excellent in in and get energy from like um kind of like the daily operations and operational excellence side. With what are your zones of genius? Well I think it's um things that involve um getting people excited, uh, that's number one. So, you know, there's a lot of activation energy required to start a startup or any sort of project. And I'm someone who's like pretty good at getting people excited about the upside of whatever project that, that is. So that could be, you know, recruiting, it could be uh, fundraising, obviously. Um, first all, when startup. in the context of a startup, that's one, one thing. I really care about the culture of the company and spending time thinking about what kind of company do I want to work at and what kind of company do, what kind of people do I want to work with. And so really focused on Uh, answering those questions uh, for the company. Um, Those are probably the two main things.
0: What are some of the things that were in your zone of excellence that you just had to
1: push up to the side or zone of competence you just really hated doing? So I used to think, I mean, I I don't think I ever, like, I think some founders think they're like excellent operators and most are not, but they don't know it. But I never thought I was like that excellent of an operator, I think. But I do think I thought I was really good at reviewing people's work. And like being, giving people feedback on tactical feedback and strategic feedback. But actually that's something, you know, one of the things Diana says in, in the 15 comments, uh, 15 commitments of conscious leadership is, you know, there's this shift move of like asking how is the opposite of what I believe true. And that's something, it's a good exercise because, um, it exposes you and forces you to think about, you know, the alternatives to your, the, your, you know, deeply held notions, right. Or, um, uh, Peter Carnigan, right. Uh, says, he does this exercise that he's been on a guest on your podcast. Yeah. Shout out to
0: Peter. Yeah. Executive coach. I think he's in the audience right now too. Yeah. Uh, and he's uh yeah. Phenomenal executive coach.
1: And this is my therapist. And he always does this. Um, AKA exercise. therapist too. Yeah. Those, those terms are interchangeable. I totally use them yeah. for both. There's this exercise that's, um, you know, 0% responsible, 100% responsible. So in this situation, you know, if there's a conflict, how am I 0% responsible? Okay, now tell, retell it as how am I 100% responsible? And um, so I had this story, kind of getting back to the point, I had the story of like, that I'm really good at, you know, kind of doing these like business reviews and and um, uh, kind of stuff like that, giving people strategic feedback. And then, you know, I, I actually was out for one of set of them. I think I was sick or, or I was on a trip or something. And then Joanna did all of them. And, everyone liked it a lot better and i think they got a lot more out of it so i kind of had to challenge that assumption of mine i asked myself how am i maybe i'm not as good as i think or maybe i'm this is not in my zone of genius um and so now you know i i've that's another that's a set of things that i kind of delegated um so that would be one example and does uh are there stages in which this becomes
0: more practical or useful for for listeners and and in a lot of founders and creators out there with maybe a three-person startup or they're just getting going with a, a side business, when can, when do you think a leader can start thinking through, all right, I, I'm ready for Zones of Genius? Or or when is it kind of like, all right, I'm the janitor too. I need to do everything.
1: Well, I think knowledge and action are independent, right? So a lot of people would say, oh, well, I have a three-person company, so I can't make those choices. Well, how do you know if you don't have the knowledge of what you actually of what is in your zone of genius and what's not in your zone of genius, right? How do you know that you can't make that choice? Um, you don't. So you should do the exercise first, right? It could be the case in your three person startup that your things that are in your zone of genius that need to be done are perfectly aligned with like whatever, you know, or you're in your two other co founder zones of genius. Now, obviously, only working in things that are, you know, give you energy and that you like to do and you're good at is maybe a platonic ideal and it's kind of like an impossible task. For anyone, even someone who's the CEO of like a ten thousand person company, um, but I think it's worth doing that exercise and trying to move yourself and the amount of work that you're doing or the type of work you're doing towards that zone of genius, because there's always almost certainly things you can do today to move yourself towards that ideal.
0: Right. It's a good uh, good articulation of moving towards it, and in articulation that it might be the ideal that's never, never quite possible, but at least uh, directionally, is is. Potentially far more powerful for the business. I I could easily see in my own experience. Yeah, there were things I thought I was good at, I was terrible at. Once you see world class, you're like, shit. Okay, that's what really good looks like. The um, it, within that within that realm was when you were telling the team this, like, all right, these are the things that I want to focus on. These are the things I don't want to focus on. Was it super straightforward? Was it kind of uh, unnerving for some of the executives around you? Was did it require? Did it feel like it required courage from you to to say, "Hey, these are the things that I'm going to focus on, and these other things I'm not going to."
1: I don't know that it felt like it required courage, but I do think it, it was unnerving for people because that set of things that I want to focus on is only is you know like somewhat correlated with like what CEO is supposed to do, right? There's other things that normally people might think, oh, the CEO should do. So when it was like. Um, for some of those things, they were like, "Oh, is he for real? Or uh, are we sure? Or maybe he'll want to like take them back, or he actually secretly wants to micromanage those things, you know? But not say he's responsible for them." But I think that um, you know, so you have to prove that this is like you mean what you say by you know constantly reinforcing that message. Oh, you know, this person, this executive, is actually in charge of this, like we said, we outlined, and you know, he's going to make the final decision, and you know, say that week over week until people actually understand that and internalize it. Well, zooming, zooming out,
0: um, something that, that I never asked in the first episode and a, and a friend afterwards uh, told me that he wished that I had asked is um, out of all of the businesses and 15 years of starting things, um, what, is, what was the most, the most challenging time? Uh. Either most challenging day, afternoon uh, week
1: or, or, you know, full on season of a few months or, or years? Yeah. The most challenging time was definitely in 2013. I had this business. was called exec. It was like a kind of like task rabbit, but then we pivoted to, um, be like uh, a house cleaning service, like a on on demand or like a a book online house cleaning service, which is not really a tech startup to be honest, but, um, we had a website. So, you know, um, So we had this this company that was not going super well. Um, And the whole year in 2013, I was just beating myself up over it. I'd hyped it up so much. I'm like a really good storyteller. And so I had hyped it up a lot. And we'd raised, you know, what seemed like a lot of money to me at the time. It wasn't that much money, $3.5 million or $3.7 million. And um, I had set all these expectations for myself, with my team, with the investors. And then we just like were not delivering. And... I just carried that all on my shoulders and I was you know, kind of torturing myself all the time. I got to the point where I didn't want to get out of bed. Um, and I just didn't, you know, I felt kind of sick every morning. And so started seeing a therapist and, you know, just trying to work through my uh, issues around the startup. Um, I mean, there wasn't like a, I guess a low point was like one of my engineers we had like a steady attrition of people leaving at the end because they everyone, you know, could kind of see the writing on the wall. And someone who I really liked who I thought was one of our like best uh, engineers left. And I just I got super hammered. I was like really pissed. Um could not take things, you know, was not dealing with dealing with the you know, emotions super well that day.
0: And yeah, I uh I can empathize. I remember when uh tilt was going through really tough the last eighteen months were just super tough and and uh great people were leaving and it's just, uh, and it was just, it's kind of like, and Peter knows cause, uh, he was, uh, he's my coach through it all. Like, I just couldn't look at, at my email anymore. Um, I hated looking at my email and it's like, it's like, you know, those, the rats in a, in a, a lab that if they get, uh, zapped randomly, mm-hmm. then they're freaked out the entire time. Yeah. If they get zapped because they touch, uh, touch a pedal, then they're totally fine. They're like, yeah. oh, don't touch the pedal. But if they get zapped randomly, then they're just freaked out at all times that anything's yeah. gonna zap them, and and uh, that's when they get
1: super fucked up.
0: Right? Yeah. Yeah. And then they fucking take down a fifth of JMO. Yeah. Um, but that's uh, yeah, that's the um, that's what it was like. I think when I look back on it, there was maybe only uh, a handful of actual moments that were super uh, harsher or really that felt like I was getting absolutely zapped but it was because they would come so randomly had no idea when they were gonna when they were gonna come and it and it really uh it really messed with my my psychology throughout the day even though maybe it was like every two weeks something really major which i mean verbalizing it it's that's pretty often but um but man it was uh the hardest part was looking back maybe it was once a month something really out of left field would, would uh, rock us and, and rock me as a as CEO. But uh, when I look back at it, it was like every moment of every day, it was like,
1: when is that gonna Right, happen? you're like constantly on a high alert, right? Right, constantly. Walking around with your phone in your pocket, you're like constantly, you know, you're gonna zap once in a while. Exactly, just checking it's email. torture wow. device. Right,
0: right. <laughs> no. Speaking of devices, um, you had you t- taken on a regimen of, of kind of uh, just clearing out a lot of noise in your life. Uh, with devices, and you mentioned that a little bit on the first podcast. Um, do you mind telling um, listeners in the audience here just the things that you did back then? And then I want to the, the follow up is: Have you figured out any other things that have just helped you declutter uh, the noise in your life?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I guess this relates kind of to that story, you know. And with the, with exec, I was like super depressed, and I thought of another moment where it's like, you know, I obviously I had this really bad night where like someone quit, but then I was like some a couple months later I just randomly broke down I remember I was in a bar with one of my co-founders and I just broke down and I was sobbing to him right I was just like could not deal I couldn't deal with these random negatives that were happening and uh, it's the first time I broke down like that and like probably you know before since then or like you know before or since like um, around work and um I realized like now, you know, today I didn't have the tools to deal with my experience, right? Like, you know, I had this experience. Parts of it were negative, parts of it were very positive, but I didn't have the tools to deal with the negatives. And so, a lot of like what I've been doing for myself today is trying to give myself the tools to deal with the human experience that involves like these sorrows that you're gonna experience, uh, you know, that are gonna come across and that are gonna happen to you every once in a while. And so, you know, one of the things is just trying to be more present in my experience. And in order to, you know, I realized my phone was a big distraction. So I was looking at five and a half hours a day. Like I said, this is in December. And five and a half hours a day times seven days a week is 37.5 hours, right? So that's like a full-time job. Just shy. Of that, just shy of, You don't have health insurance, but, you know, it's yeah. like a... It's a, it's, a gig, almost, it's a gig job. It's a gig. Yeah, it's a full-time gig job. Um, and I was like shocked. You know, that was, that's, that's a lot. And so I deleted all the apps off my phone, all the entertainment ones, like, you know, YouTube and Twitch and... Uh, I deleted email and Slack. And I deleted, uh, let's see what else, all the shopping apps and a br- the browser. So I couldn't like backdoor and go on Twitter. I deleted Twitter, all the social media apps, Twitter, Facebook, I deleted Instagram. And I locked my phone and I uh, made it so I couldn't install any apps. And then I turned it black and white, which is less addictive. So you know, my phone's been on black and white for 10 months without any of these apps. And I, I realized like, I was just like a lot more present in my experience. I wasn't, I wasn't um, compelled all the time. I'm trying to remove all the compulsive behavior from my life. So pulling out your phone and looking at it's compulsive behavior. And so I wanted to remove that. And it, and that kind of worked, it helped me be more present in my experience. Um, what are, else? There, are there things in the
0: last six months that, uh, that have been added to that list of, of things that now that you, you are kind of go-to's
1: kind to, of update to keep the list updated. So this is a list I have online, it's, um, called Feeling Good. This list of things I've practiced I've been doing uh, really ramped up the uh, negative visualization part. So I think I might've mentioned that last time, but I've been doing this exercise where I think about my impending death.
0: Yeah, you wrote about that on Twitter yesterday. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe not impending, but like, so your future. Well, it is impending, I guess, on a certain (laughs) timescale. Do you mind diving into that? What, uh, one, just uh, giving the primer on negative visualization and then going to, yeah, the stuff that you were writing about. History.
1: Yeah, so negative visualization is this is when you kind of visualize something that bad that's going to happen and kind of like put yourself in that experience. And then, you know, for me, you know, it might be like, oh, well, how will I die, or like, if, if what would happen if I got cancer and 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 uh, and was you know terminal cancer and tried to like imagine what that experience would be like. And then, you know, kind of want to wake up in reality. I think, it, it, back in in the real world, it gives me two things. One is very deep gratitude for my current state of existence. And the second is, uh, and I'm like being thankful, um, for it. And then I think the second is like, it kind of dampens like negative experiences that happen because they're recontextualized in this, like, well, there could be like, it could be way worse, right? Oh, this person quit. Well, don't have cancer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and so one of the things I I read this book recently, um, which I really like called the five invitations by, uh, Frank, who, uh, he started the zen hospice project in san francisco and um was a meditator and and uh he you know sat with dying people and these these were the things he learned uh from the dying and i was reading the book and i was very moved by it. and one of one of the things was uh the first invitation is don't wait and so when i was doing my visualization i was like oh who would i want to see when i'm you know on my deathbed and what would i say to them and then I was inspired to just write it out, like write out all the things I would say to all the people I would want to see. And then just go, so I was like, I should tell these people now. Why, why would I wait? And so I started doing that. It was a cathartic experience for me.
0: That's great. It's five in- invitations. Yeah, the five invitations.
1: Awesome. It's a beautiful book.
0: Okay, I want to go to some of the questions that we got on, uh, on Twitter for today's episode. Um, and the first one was um, we touched on Zones of Genius, which is great because people, uh, someone wanted to ask about that. Um, also touched on the six months of no drinking. Um, one of the questions uh, that we haven't touched on is, uh, you recently tweeted about whether your approach to non-attachment was the effect of financial success or whether you would have been even more successful with that mindset early on, as you thought about it, what conclusion did you come to? So I think this question is referring to, um, you've, you've adopted a pretty, uh, pretty strong, um, philosophy of non-attachment. and and not becoming attached to the things that that you're building with atrium or or uh likely into your personal life as well um do you think that is just an effect of being in this this you know incredibly uh fortunate financial situation that you find yourself in now or do you think this is something that uh would have actually potentially um helped you achieve even more in in previous years in life
1: Sure. So, you know, the non-attachment is really uh, a Buddhist idea, right, from 2,500 years ago, which is that suffering is caused by cravings, that you have the attachments, you have the things you want, right, or the things you're averse to. And I found that very true when I read that, you know, I found it to be very true in my own experience. You know, I will experience pain, painful things, right, someone leaving the company or something. but. What really t- makes me torture myself is like, oh, I really need them to stay, otherwise my company's gonna fail. Or this, you know, I really love this person. So, like, them leaving is a personal attack. Um, and all these, like, stories that I wrap the actual event around. Um, and so, uh, you know, really try to work on the cessation of, of craving uh, in my life. It's imperfect. I don't think I'm nearly there at all, right? I'm very, very much on the first step. Um, But I I do think that uh, an argument or a question, a conversation I have with a lot of friends or or other other people is um, they say, like, would you be as successful if you had um, not been as attached to outcomes earlier in your career? And my answer is actually, I think so. Uh, But I don't know. It's very hard to prove the counterfactual. But I, I think so. And the reason I think so is, you know, I have a very direct example, which is like when I was starting these companies early on, I would always... Think the grass was going to be greener on the other side and want to do something else, and so um, that caused in, you know very directly me when we you know after we pivoted to Twitch it was growing pretty well I was like I should go start another company because I could build something even better you know as Twitch was really Emmett my co-founder's idea internally at our at our Justin TV startup and he was really running with it so I was like I should just you know I'm I was like I need to do something bigger or more important or whatever so I had this craving right and then I went. And so this new company, exact, which did not work super well. And what I probably should have done was like stuck around Twitch and helped them with things, certain things that I was really good at, like raising money. And uh, who knows what would have happened. But you know, I mean, Twitch today is is a, a pretty big company. You know, the other you know uh, outlets and stuff have said it's worth ten billion dollars or fifteen billion dollars. I don't know what the truth is. But I've it's seen like, twenty.
0: I've seen twenty five. But it, yeah. Uh, but the. Uh, but yeah, it's it's. I think it's a good. That's almost uh, strangely
1: quantifiable. Right. Right, example. right. But, you know, you never know what would have happened, but I, I'm very. No,
0: convinced. but I mean, it's almost like quantifiable in terms of like. You
1: could you could
0: zoom out and, and pretty within 30 seconds of kind of uh, imaginably think about it, kind of. So I come think up the, with that
1: I think the point is that when you are, you are not letting your attachment to how, like so my attachment to like having a big company, right, I really wanted to happen. I was craving to have a big company um, and it was like making me make decisions unconsciously when I know I have that. Um, when I'm not attached to the outcomes, I can like say, okay, what is a, what do I want to do from a more rational uh, perspective and make a decision that's based, you know, not based on, on these, these compulsions. I think that's really important.
0: Do you, when you, you voice these kind of, uh, philosophical musings online, do you get flack for it online? Do you get even just friends, uh, that are like, dude, you're way out there. Well, uh, I think that uh, like people... rib, ribbing you just over, yeah. over water,
1: I guess. I think there's some people who are like, is this guy for real? Oh, some Silicon Valley, the TV show shit right here, you know, like I'm out there talking about Buddhism or whatever on, on, on my, um, on my Twitter. The reason I talk about this stuff on Twitter is really it's, I learn by, you know, I think if you want to learn something, you should teach it. Um, and so for me, as I'm discovering stuff as in order to internalize it and make it part of my identity, I'll like talk about it. You know, I'm an evangelist personality and I'll, so Twitter is like a great place for me to like kind of, Write up in a succinct way some of the things I've learned and then share them out in the world and you know People like them. It's it's a it's an offering, right? People like it great. If they don't like it. That's okay, too it's free and so um, I think some people are like Skeptical, uh, they're you know, even friends of mine were like, oh, is he for real? I don't know um, Although now, you know, I've been kind of doing it for a while So maybe they I think they've come around and then I think some people are um you know, there's this trend in society today where people um, are not able to disaggregate the person stating the argument or like idea from um, the person from the idea, right? Mm -hmm. So if they think the person and the idea are incongruous, then they, um, if they're incongruent, then they're like, this is, this doesn't, this is bullshit, right? So there's some people who are like, he's like a tech guy. How can he be into mindfulness or meditation, right? He like created this app, that's like, you know, people use this, the tons of people use, it's obviously an entertainment app, so it's, it's a form of distraction or unconsciousness in a way. How could he, you know, now it's hypocritical to say like, oh, now you're like into, you've deleted all the apps, you're into meditation or whatever. Um, and that's like a logical fallacy, of course, like people don't understand logic, so they don't they don't get it. But, um, you know, ideas are independent of, of the person speaking them.
0: Have, have any of, uh, has it, inter- it taken a toll in any way? Um- so, I mean, people like,
1: there's a lot of like haters, right? So there's uh, a lot of times people will, like, um, be, be up in my mentions, uh, sipping on haterade. <laughs> but I, I like to follow them all. You know, I follow. Them, I, I like to follow, learn about them and follow them. And it's like a it's like a digital meta meditation. So meta is this uh, you know poly word for loving kindness and uh, um, type of meditation practice that people do in um, like Buddhist traditions. You try to hold uh, people around you, right? In in this with this feeling of a loving kindness to them, right, and compassion. And um, so I'm like, you know, how can I, instead of getting triggered? You know, that's my first instinct, right? My amygdala is firing, and I'm like, oh, fight or flight. I should argue with this person. I try to think like, what, what is, you know, what's his experience of reading my comments, and what does he think? Okay, why would you think that? And like, can I see this person as a human being who, you know, maybe is you know, illo- not, not super logical, but like, um, has a right to say these, you know, to hate on me. And, and can I, mm-hmm. um, can I follow them and be reminded of that mm-hmm. every time I look at Twitter? Yeah, that's, that is deep. Um, all but right. I next. think it's, it's, I think that is, could be on Silicon an episode of Silicon Valley.
0: <laughs> well, Hey, the, it, they did the research. Um, <laughs> all right. next question on, uh, speaking of, of Twitter, um, Says uh, this is a very tactical question, uh, but within uh, no, I'm gonna skip that. That's super tactical. Uh, it's a very a heavy SaaS question. A little too
1: tactical. Um, Invest. Start a SaaS company. Yeah. The uh, the question.
0: The and because of time, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you uh, these last two questions, um, which is how can CEOs talk about their stress and burnout without scaring away customers and investors?
1: Well, I mean, you can talk about the ones you've experienced in the past. I think that's always easier, right? So talking about the stuff you've experienced more for far in the past. I mean, you probably don't want to be out there saying, like, I'm really stressed. We're running. We have two weeks of cash left. (laughs) right? Because your customers are like, "Eh, I don't want to make that your problem my problem. Um, So I do think that there's, you know, kind of a fiduciary responsibility to your your company to probably be uh, discreet about material things. Um, But I think that, like, I don't think people hold it against you to say you experience stress. Unfortunately, stress is part of the landscape of like the modern business world and professional world. In fact, a lot of people wear like a badge of honor. They're like, oh, I'm so stressed. I have like, I must be important. Um, And so I think you can talk about your experience of stress and that's not abnormal, right? That is something that everyone experiences. And then you can talk about how you're dealing with that. And I think if you're dealing with it in a healthy way, people actually admire that. I, you know, lots of people apply to work at Atrium because of the things that I say online and that, you know, I think they see, oh, this person maybe have a different attitude than some of the other startup people that I may have applied at or worked for, and that sounds like a better place to work because of it. And that might be true, there's probably aspects that are, maybe there's some that could be improved, but like, I think it, in a way, it's an advertisement, it's a flag for the type of people that I wanna work with. And so I, I do think that, you know, it can be to your advantage um, if you're, if, if you're honest
0: and, uh, and I'll, uh, add that it's, it's also, it seems in my experience, um, I got super burned out and had no idea. In fact, I remember 12 months prior to me being extremely burned out after the acquisition with Airbnb, I, uh, 12 months before that, I would so stupidly say, I don't, I don't think burnout is a thing. I would so stupidly say that, uh, that burnout is mind over matter and there are stressful times in life, but you can have mind over matter. It wasn't until two months after the acquisition with Airbnb, I was, I was taking an hour and a half nap every afternoon at Airbnb's office. And I was like, Oh, no, this is normal. I work hard. I love naps and I'm here really late. So it's a great way to like fit in extra productivity. After two months, on the third month, it was like, Oh, okay, this is, I don't really need the nap. And the fourth month, didn't need the nap at all and i remember looking back and was like holy shit i like needed 90 minutes of sleep 5 hours into my day because i was so burnt out i was so exhausted could could barely sleep and uh and it wasn't until after the fact that i was like oh shit that was insane burnout not being able to sleep and then having to sleep in the middle of the day and it's so obvious in retrospect but at the time like I literally was like, ah, oh, burnout's not a thing. So I think this question uh, for um, I believe Todd uh, asked this on, on Twitter.
1: Um, well, let me actually just one one more thing about uh, one more thing about the uh, previous question, which is like, how can you talk about this stuff online? Um, you know, stress and, and burnout. I think that it's you know, I was having this conversation with another a friend of mine who you know, I'm very close to, uh, kind of mentor uh, with him with his startup. You know, there is a lot of money, hundred million dollars. Um, and we were talking about candor actually this morning. And he was saying like, well, there's sometimes it's, you know, are you always, do you always need to be candid? Or, you know, it seems like sometimes it's just like better for the company. Like if you're not candid, he was talking about an idea he had been discussing with his coach. Cause I think he's, you know, sometimes he's scared of having some of these conversations and his coach was like, you know, they were arguing and he was trying to come up with examples of like why, you know, where it wouldn't make sense to be candid. And at a certain point his coach was just like, you, you know, Uh, well, sometimes, like, maybe it's more important, you have to decide whether it's more important to be candid than it is to have a successful company, or the most successful company, right? And um, I think something we don't pay attention to is that, you know, our principles are things that we won't compromise even to be successful. And most people don't think about the principles, they say, well, we have company values, and these are values that help us be successful. These These are values that, Help us be successful. They help us, obviously, they're, you know, kind of, kind help of marketing, help us win. Win at all costs. Um, but really values and principles, more than values, are things that you have even when they hurt you from being successful. And I don't think, I know for myself, I never thought about principles. Like, what are my principles? What are the things that I will, like, not compromise even if it hurts my business? And so maybe, you know, being authentic about my experience. And being conscious about my experience, I think that is a principle that I have. I, I I will I will not compromise that, even if it wasn't, um, the best thing for 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 the business. Because that's that's who I am and that's my character.
0: That's yeah, that's powerful. The, um, yeah, in, in stress mitigation, there's meditation. It's it's great. Um, being honest, it's also yeah. such a great uh, stress stress mitigation tactic. It's it's one of the best. The last question I have for you is. Um, the tech ecosystem that you've been a part of for the last 15 years and have helped build in many ways and as a, a founder, a well-known founder and investor as, uh, as you know, a creator here in, in Silicon Valley and a thought leader within, within the tech realm, what are some of the things in the tech ecosystem that are really helpful? And, and do you think there are any things in the tech ecosystem that are pretty harmful towards, towards innovation, progress, healthy, progress and innovation.
1: Um, well, I guess the helpful side I think there is an attitude here of, you know, people being excited about innovation and new ideas and that's always been here and I think we take it a little bit for granted actually, but you know, get other place in the world that doesn't exist as much. And so I think that's very positive. You know, I've met with I yesterday I met with a founder who's like building a longevity company, you know, uh, she's 25 years old and like um, building this like company that's goal is to to um, create a therapeutic approach to extending human lifespan on like that's pretty amazing right that's an that's a very interesting innovation um, that she's working on and it's a totally flyer idea right but you know who knows what's gonna happen but there's someone here who's like raising money and like and I actually start this company to, to, to do something very novel and there's you know thousands of those people and I think that's pretty um, that's pretty unique here about Silicon Valley uh, and I think we people, you know, people have said it before, but I think people take take it for granted now. You know, we kind of make fun of it. It's like, you know, we have Silicon Valley, a TV show, and like you kind know, of people make fun of it, and like the zeitgeist has turned a little bit against startups, and so we kind of ignore some of those good things that come with uh, with the fact that there's a lot of interest in creating innovative entrepreneurial endeavors. Um, the bad is probably I think there is a corporatization of uh, the tech industry that's happening at like a super big level, right? Like with you know the fan companies and. Um, where they're they're you know kind of just they have such a big cash cash ends they are just buying up talent and you know kind of working maybe that's not the best use of all of these people's time. They're working on like, you know, very trivial things. Uh, right. I was reading this Hacker News article um last night about Uber laid off, you know, a couple hundred people and um one of the comments on Hacker News had outlined all these, you know, redundant open source projects that engineers had worked on in Uber that were like now like uh you know um uh, they were they were shut down, right? And I think these big companies are getting like they have so much resources that they're most of the actual headcount growth in Silicon Valley is for these large corporation, technology corporations, and they're um, not super efficient at allocating resources on innovation. Um, you know, it's just really on the machine to make money and like really monop- You know, the, the the core goal I think maybe an unconscious goal is to monopolize talent here, and so I think that's probably bad for for innovation.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's. Yeah. It's not frequently spoken about. Um, Well, that's awesome. Okay. We're uh, we're going to turn the tables real, real quick for a few minutes to talk about uh, uh, this this, uh, little book that uh, everybody's going to get a copy of here. Um, And, uh, and, and folks that are listening online can go to beyondcoffeebook.com and, and sign up for a book that I wrote uh, last year, but publishing it this year and uh, is a uh, fun undertaking in a completely strange world it has nothing to do with startups but i wrote a book on nootropics adaptogens and mushrooms um called beyond coffee that uh, that i'm really excited about come out in november and uh justin agreed to ask yeah. a few, All right. a few I wanna, questions
1: I'm, about it. i uh i want to learn about this book so what like First of all, for someone who doesn't know, what are nootropics, adaptogens, and I mean, I know what mushrooms are, but the first first two, nootropics and adaptogens. Just
0: in case, yeah, yeah, the uh, nootropics, nootropics, they're kind of, uh, it's interchangeable pronunciation, but uh, it is, uh, they are compounds that will improve uh, cognition in any form. So many people think that they're complete uh, BS, but we actually have like three decades of, of research that you can take something like Bacopo Manere, an herb that'll improve your, your memory by uh, up to 25%. Um, we actually have a lot of research that shows coffee is, is really destructive for your adrenal glands. Your, it spikes your cortisol. Um, a cup of coffee will have the same uh, physiological um, impact, impact on your body as if you're swerving to avoid a, an accident on the highway. It's that type of acute stress that, that hits your body. Um, so, yeah, nootropics are cognitive enhancing compounds that could do everything from help you with faster uh, verbal recall, or it could be um, better memory. Uh, but there, there's about 46 compounds that uh, that we researched me and two co-authors research for the book to talk about what's what's real and what's not within them.
1: And what are adaptogens?
0: Adaptogens are de-stressing uh, compounds. So um, adaptogens. Be something like ashwagandha, which is 3,000 years old, that de-stresses you. I'd say the number one insight of the book that I that I took away in writing it, I actually kind of uh, pieced it together. Was productivity is way more than just energy and wakefulness. And we drink coffee. We drink a lot of coffee as as Americans uh, for wakefulness. But everyone knows one extra cup and what you need, and you're jittery or excitable, and you're not productive. And one of the insights uh, in the research was that productivity is is both um, it's both energy, cognition, or it's all three: energy, cognition, and direction. So energy, obviously, that's you know wakefulness, alertness. Uh, cognition is just your motor speed, how quickly you're able to uh, recall something or uh, reaction speed for questions that are coming your way, or thoughts that are being tossed up in a company brainstorm. The last one is direction, um, de-stressing agents, like, uh, and I know this sounds so woo-woo for, a, for like a, a, a software-focused startup founder to talk about, but um, I'd say out of the entire book, these, uh, this, co- this category of, of compounds, adaptogens, are so phenomenally powerful for productivity because they de-stress you. And in a world where we are all just so uh, at a, in a heightened state of alert, at all times for, uh, for stress, for a million notifications on your phone. Um, you can take two different herbs, ashwagandha and, and rhodiola, and you will be far more productive in your day because you're going to be a lot less uh, anxious, a lot less stress. And so that was, that was kind of the insight of the, the entire book buried into that uh, category of adaptogens was productivity is more than just wakefulness, um, but it's, uh, it's energy, uh, cognition and direction. So why haven't
1: these things taken off, right? You called it beyond coffee because people love coffee, right? But they don't love adaptogens yet. <laughs> yeah. But like, why don't why aren't why are there like uh, adaptogen shops, well, like, nootropic shops?
0: My hope is that th- that right now, when when you're kind of like as an audience member, when you're like kind of mentally checking out, and you're like, okay, that was great stuff from, from Justin. My hope is five years from now, this stuff is a ubiquitous and it does take off because it goes from. Being this fringe thing to being adopted in a in a in a much more mass kind of mainstream way, I think it's starting to. Um, coffee is one hell of a thing to try to compete with because it is so it's, addictive. It's a very addictive and it's very very American. But um, but I think the uh, the reason they haven't taken off is they just haven't been as understood and they're not as immediately gratifying as a stimulant of, of coffee is. So. Two hundred years ago, you give someone a cup of coffee, boom, they're like, "Holy shit, I want more of this." Um, something like ashwagandha or an adaptogen really takes like six or seven days for it to start to build, and so that's uh,
1: that's one of the major reasons. That's a lot. I mean, put someone on a course of things, you're going to like see benefits in six or seven days. Most people, they don't have the attention span right. for that. So, how do you? What is the path to people adopting it's, adaptogens?
0: it's it, it's the through the scientific understanding of of just how beneficial they can be for your biophysiology so the book has over 240 scientific studies cited on these things and you can kind of put in all three of these uh, nootropics uh, adaptogens and and mushrooms into three buckets A bucket of kind of total hype and there's no real science behind it A bucket of There's real substance there, but it's actually there's some really dangerous um, side effects from from a handful of these. And then there's this third bucket that's right at the right at the the nexus of efficacy and safety, really effective and really safe. And that's kind of the third bucket that one gets overshadowed by the first two. But but two, um, I think it's just when it's all said and done, these compounds really started to be studied in the last 30 years and more so in the last 10 um, it probably took coffee according to like the, the anecdotes, uh, and, and some of the historicity of it took coffee 40, 50, 60 years, uh, before it was adopted mainstream. These things will probably take half that time. Uh, but, uh, but I think it's just the science and it's not nearly as, as gratifying, uh, immediately as, as, as coffee is.
1: How did you get into writing this book?
0: So, uh, six years ago, I went to the ER, uh, with, um, a rapid heart rate and, uh, didn't know what was going on. I thought it was just stress and, uh, went through a litany of different tests and, and my doctor was asking me about my habits and, and I told him I was drinking five to to six cups of coffee a day. And I was probably drinking more than that, to be honest. Like I would have my first cup of, of coffee in the morning would be a Venti Starbucks Um, and there's some tilt team members here that would probably remember this. And I would drink a Venti Starbucks with two extra shots. It's called a black eye. It's like a known order that you can just be like, Hey, give me a black eye. And it that's five cups of coffee in one. And then I'd have probably two on top of that. And, um, and I just kept seeing all these like little pop side articles come out that it's like, coffee's good for you. Coffee's great for you. Probably all funded by Starbucks. Now that I look back and, and actually now rigorously look at, at these studies, I'm like, oh my God, this is like a sample size of five people. So um, long story short, I was in the doctor's office and then he was so, uh, matter of fact, he was like, yeah, it's, um, it's uh, he kind of nodded his head and he, and he apparently confirmed something he was thinking when I told him how much coffee I was having. He was like, yeah, you, um, you have what's what's called atrial fibrillation and uh, it's a irregular irregular heartbeat. Um, we need to go to the ER. Uh, and he's like so calm, but he's like, we need to uh, go to the ER next door and have my my heart cardioverted, meaning like the thing in, in movies where they have the two metal paddles and they shock your heart back into regular rhythm. It was pretty, pretty gnarly. But out of that entire day, the only thing that I actually really remember uh, like sticking in my mind almost obsessively, I was like, okay, it's not terminal, so that's good. I don't have to, they'll, cardiovert my heart I'll be back to normal but he said to me he's like um you know you really can only drink one cup of coffee and I was like there's no fucking way I can (laughs) I can get through the day on on one cup cup of coffee I was severely addicted and um and and I was like I'm running a company with 50 plus employees there's no way I can get through uh one you know through the day with one cup of coffee and and so he said to me this one little offhand comment that stuck with me he said have you ever tried green tea it has this stuff in it called l-theanine which will help calm you down. It has less caffeine, and it'll help extend the effects of the caffeine uh, longer uh, than than a cup of coffee. So, I was like, "Oh, uh, this weird compound, l L-thenine, will help extend the effects of of caffeine." Um, and so that little thought got lodged in my brain, and then probably 18 months later i'd uh, i'd just researched gone down the rabbit hole of everything else that i could add to my 1 cup of morning coffee to make it last uh, the entire day and give me as much productivity and and uh and fruitful creativity as as possible so that's the like that's where it started and and uh and today it's you know i got the book but I take like 12 things every So you're morning. just
1: like crushing up Adderall pills and putting them in your <laughs> yeah. coffee.
0: Yes. The end of the book basically says, get off of coffee, move to Adderall. Uh, no, Adderall is covered in the book. Uh, and, and Adderall is, is really, uh, it's in that dangerous category. It's uh, each, especially in the last three years, it's just coming out more and more how neurotoxic it is uh, for, for your brain, meaning that it's, it's doing uh, quite significant medium and long-term damage um, to your neurology. Uh, e- even though you're getting these, you know, these bumps of energy every every day uh, from it, the um, but uh, but no, it's it's actually the things that I take very few stimulants. I, I, t- I drink very uh, very little coffee, and it's actually these other things that increase things that increase blood flow to your brain, things that'll uh, decrease inflammation, improve your uh, immunity support because your body's just wasting so much energy fighting off you know latent. Uh, um,
1: so you know, what what's in it? Like what's in the James Juice?
0: The James juice is, um, if you go to beyond and you can put in an email and you'd see everything that I take in the, in the morning, as well as, uh, for listeners online, you can read the first two, two chapters, uh, for free. Uh, but the, f- the five important things that I, I tell people, uh, to, to take in the morning are omega threes, uh, omega threes in a specific kind called DHA, um, That is neuroprotective, uh, neuroregenerative. So if you've ever had concussions, Mm -hmm. omega threes, DHA. It's it's so funny to switch from what we were talking about philosophically going to morning (laughs) regimen. But uh, um, but it is uh, it's it's they're one in the same. You know, mind, body, spirit. The things that I take in the morning are are part of the way that I manage stress. So omega threes, DHA. That is just. Uh, there's about 35 years of research of that improving your cognition and and being really great for neuroprotection and and neuroregeneration. Um, second is turmeric, turmeric, and the book talks about the studies on turmeric. It's you know in Indian food, it's commonplace, uh, but uh, it's it's very inexpensive. It's as effective as Prozac uh, for antidepressant and anti uh, anxious um, properties. So it is it is uh, and and incredibly cheap. So turmeric is really powerful as an anti-inflammatory, which your body's just expending, especially as we age, a lot of energy on inflammation. Third is uh, CDP choline. um, And that is naturally, choline is naturally found in eggs. So you can get it from eggs, uh, or you can take a supplement uh, to increase uh, blood flow to your brain, uh, which will improve lateral thinking. So creative thinking and can improve your creative thinking up to 20, 25 percent. Meaning, if I were to give you a test of name uh, as many animals as you can in twenty seconds, yeah, you can actually test yourself twenty-five percent more. 25% more. Um, uh, second to last is bacopa monnieri. Bacopa, an herb that's been around for uh, for also known as Brahmi, it's been around for three thousand years in India, uh, an Ayurvedic herb that'll increase your memory twenty percent. So you, you've got to take it at least two weeks, ideally four weeks in a row, but it'll increase your memory, your short-term recall um, 20%. So I could list off numbers and you'd recall more of them by taking this. And it's completely safe. Every single one of these is completely safe. You can take them every morning. Um, and then the last is matcha. So switching from coffee over to matcha green tea. And for uh, listeners, they, they'll hear me talk about matcha quite a bit on the podcast, but uh, matcha uh, green tea, which is powdered green tea, is um, my favorite form of caffeine. It has L-thene in it, that which goes back to kind of uh, the very beginning of the story, which was the conversation with my doctor. But the powdered leaf that, it, that matcha has, as opposed to regular green tea, has 130 times more antioxidants than regular green tea because of that, the leaf in there. So uh, matcha green tea is, uh, it's, I think it's the healthiest and mo- most- creative form of, uh, of caffeine that people can drink in the mornings or in the afternoon.
1: That's a lot. So we can just replicate that. We don't have to read the book. <laughs>
0: kind of, kind of you I, the, in reading the book, you'll see there's some, some, uh, some things in there, especially when it comes to mushrooms, like uh lion's mane mushrooms that, that are an, an a phenomenally, uh, powerful form of energy that has no caffeine, no addictive properties whatsoever. Some people actually also think that, uh, that lion's mane, um, is, uh, well, read the book.
1: Read the book. I'll okay. leave
0: that. I'll leave that as a, as a little bit of a cliffhanger to to read the book.
1: Any final takeaways from it? Like any others? The
0: you know the takeaway is it's super short. Uh, it's a <laughs> it's a thirty forty minute read, so it's really short. Um, I hate books that that drone on and on when they really could convey the message. Very short, uh, you know, very very succinctly. So it's thirty minute read if you're if you're a fast reader. So yeah. Check out the book. It's a very easy read and a big shout out to co-authors. Dr. Dan Engel, who's a uh, psychiatrist and uh, neurologist, who's probably probably the foremost um, um, healthcare professional on this, this kind of forefront of cognitive improving compounds. And then Catherine Haynes, who's a friend of mine from high school, who's a medical researcher and specifically works in pediatric neurology, which is one of the medical one of the professional medical areas that focuses a lot on these natural um, and less invasive and, and far less prescriptive approaches to, uh, to, to things like ADD, to things like anxiety and, and children, because you know they, they really want to try everything they can before putting someone on a prescription. So that's a medical um, realm that really focuses on these compounds. So big shout out to, to those two. But no, that's about it.
1: Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to reading this.
0: All right. Thank you, J-Man. And thank you all for coming out. Thank you, Justin, for coming tonight. Big round of applause for Justin. Yay! Thank you, Liquid Death, for sponsoring the event. Big shout out to Liquid Death. And uh, and thank you all for uh, for attending and listening to Blow the Line and supporting this project uh, that will likely culminate in a book of its own over time. So thank you all for coming. Hey, friends and listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to hear more of these types of conversations, go over to your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe or leave us a review. Good or bad, we love hearing from people that that appreciate this type of conversation and want more of it. You can also follow us on Twitter. At go below the line, as well as see in our Twitter bio our email address for you to shoot us a note on any suggestions of guests or topics that we should cover. We read every single one, so thank you for those that have already sent those in. That's it for us today. We will see you next time on Below the Line.
1: Below the Line is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts.